Good morning. Um, you know, I want, I want to just clear something up for everybody. Uh, Reverend Harrington here, um, we often, we, because his title is apprentice pastor, because we're trying to train him up in order to send him out, um, sometimes people think of him as like a junior pastor or a not a real pastor or something like that. He's a fully ordained minister of word and sacrament, so I'm just glad you get to be here this morning. Uh, we don't get to see him very often because he's usually preaching over in Mosaic. Uh, and you are again today. The other thing that you should be aware of, you'll hear a bunch of names in a little while, but there are 11 infant or 11 children baptisms this morning in this church. There will be two in Mosaic. There will be nine in Breakaway. So whew, um, there's also profession of faith for students from our student ministries. So uh, there's two different versions of this message this morning. There's the, there's the 20 minute one that you're going to get. And there's the four minute one that they're going to get um, because of all the baptisms. We, we want to try to treat those, those families and those children. Not, we don't want a baptism factory, um, but there's a lot of backup in baptisms from the whole COVID stuff and all of that time. So um, with that said, let's, let me tell you a little bit about today. Uh, we're in the last of, uh, of our old and new series. Um, we started off with very general, pretty obvious things. Today's going to be, a, it's not obscure, but it's not a story that's fulfilled. It's the character of God walking through time with his people. And it, this was actually the inspiration for this series. Uh, I was doing a, um, a devotional for the uh, Zealand City Council and I asked my daughter and son-in-law and wife, we were sitting at the dinner table, it was a couple days after that, that I was supposed to do the devotional. You guys have any ideas of what you would like, you know, what, what would you like if you were on the city council, what kind of a devotional would you be looking for? And my daughter came up with Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's a yes. And then I thought, that's probably one that every pastor goes to when they do it. So, but I started thinking about that passage, and one of the things in it, it says, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God. And the peace of Christ, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So why is it that we're not supposed to have anxiety? Why is it that we're supposed to go? So I just started thinking back through a bunch of the passages of the Old Testament, and I landed in Exodus, believe it or not, Exodus 2. And, and okay, there's this connection, there's this connection. Let's just start looking for other connections. And that's, that's, that's where this series came from. And the other pastors jumped in. We preached a lot of the things that were their ideas and not mine, which was just very exciting. It's been really good for me as a Bible nerd um, to learn new things, to see new things, to look for new connections. So today you're going to get four scripture passages. They're not specific stories. They're more, this is what God says, or this is how he wants us to be because of who God is. The last thing before the prayer, um, you'll notice, and I would not have because I'm, we had a painting or a print hanging in the basement uh, stairwell for, we moved into our house in, in 2014. And in 2018, I said to my wife, when, when did we hang that picture? She said, the weekend we moved in. I don't notice stuff like that, but you'll notice these sheets up here. Um, uh, I was told on Thursday to make sure I tell you about it, um, and then I was like, what? So there's going to be some projection stuff throughout Advent that we're going to just try to create a, a different ambiance for the, for, the, for the Advent and Christmas season. Those will, all that stuff will come down. 
um, by January 1. So just FYI, I think you'll enjoy the experience, um, but if you're just wondering why we have bed sheets hanging up, we tried to keep it cheap. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we bless you and thank you for who you are, for what you do for us, for what you do in us, and for what you do through us. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for being God. You're going to speak to us today. So show us only what you want us to see. Tell us only what you want us to hear. And give us only what you want us to have. And Lord, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that we can see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear, and receive what you want us to have. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So Exodus, not one you usually go to for devotionals. Maybe to hear uh, of God's transformative um, and his, this rescue plan that he mounted. But it starts this, in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It starts off like this. During that long period, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help, or in their cry for help because of the slavery went up to God. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. Sometimes we always say that they were in captivity, that they were slaves for 400 years. Yeah, but if you remember Joseph, remember Joseph, the guy who, who was kind of his dad's favorite, and he, he had the cool coat, and his brothers were jealous, and then Joseph got a couple of dreams, and then he, in, in his infinite wisdom of a, as a teenage boy, decided to tell everyone what God told them about himself and that they're all going to bow down to him. They got upset, as brothers might do, and they sold him into slavery. I mean, they, <laughs> they, they were going to kill him, and then they sold him out, and then he ended up in Egypt. And he had some trouble with Potiphar's wife. Um, but over the course of a lifetime, God honored the promises he had made in the dream. Joseph ended up becoming second only to Pharaoh in the whole kingdom of Egypt. Excuse me. And he rescued the known world from famine. And God had put him there I'm sure Joseph didn't love every minute of it, but in the end, he ended up providing, planning ahead and providing for the known world during famine. And his brothers and his dad, they ended up indeed bowing down before Joseph. And they cried out for forgiveness from him. And he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So that's the backstory to these people crying out. They lived in prosperity for quite some time um, when they were in Egypt. The first and second pharaohs that were part of that whole thing saw them as blessed, and they remembered who Joseph was and all that he had done. So they multiplied this ragtag group of people who had moved, who had, had traveled, I don't know, five to 700 miles by foot to be there to be rescued from this famine. They prospered for maybe a hundred years, and grew and grew and grew. And then slowly, as we tend to do in, in, in human minds, the memory of the good that the Israelites had done and the way God had blessed all of the known world, but especially Egypt in the midst of it, the memory of that started to fade. And new kings, new pharaohs came about, and some decided they're getting too big. We need to keep them down. And so for a couple of hundred years, the Israelites were people that were in servitude. They kept growing in number, but they were in servitude. 
And I don't know how common the idea of who, God, who their God is came about or came up. I don't know if it was passed down or if there were just a few families that really held on to the truth of Yahweh. But it got bad enough that the story started getting told and the people decided to cry out. And they cried out because of their slavery. It said they groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So our God is a God who hears, who remembers the promises that he's made, who sees what's going on with his people and has concern for them. That's the character of God. Now, they had been there 400 years. They had been in a really terrible position, really terrible position, for probably a couple of hundred, couple hundred of those 400 years. And they had, for a time, forgotten about God. But when they chose to reach out to God, God heard them. He remembered it. God will never forget anything. Actually, the only thing God forgets is confessed and repented of sin. And he doesn't forget. He chooses to remember them no more. God will never break a promise. God will always keep his covenant. So this idea that he remembered his covenant, it wasn't like God was like, oh yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all those. That's not what it was. It's that he had them there for a time. They grew up into a people, and now God was going to show the world through them who God is. And the first thing we hear about God interacting with the people that had been enslaved for, for a couple of hundred years, but had been in Egypt, away from their homeland for 400, is that God hears he remembers his covenants, he sees, and he has concern for his people. So let's fast forward. That's when things are really bad and people groan, and God remembers, and God looks, God hears, and God sees. But what about when things are really good? What's the character of God when things are good? Solomon, David, Solomon, David had, had purchased the threshing floor of a ruin of the Jebusite, and he said, this is where the temple will be. This is where the, the house of the Lord will be. We learned about that in the first, first, uh, first message of this series. But David didn't get to build the temple, but Solomon did. And so the temple had been built according to the specifications that God had given him. Uh, a palace for Solomon the king had been built, and this is what God says when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him that, at night and said this, I have heard your prayers and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land and send a plague among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open 
and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Notice that God says, when I shut off the rain, when I send locusts. Why would God do that? I mean, things are really good right now. So good that they were undisturbed in, 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 in spending years to build this temple and a kingly palace. Why would God say, why would he, I'm, I'm going to be here. This is the spot. This is where I wanted for you to do your sacrifices. I'm going to, my heart is going to be there. I'm going to be there. But when I send plagues and when I shut off the rain so that there's famine, why? Well, we're told one of the characteristics of God is that God is a jealous God. And I don't mean it's not sinful jealousy. It's he knows that it's best for us if our ultimate concern, if what we are most concerned about, what, what, what drives us, what, what we go to first, he knows that if, if it's God, then things tend to work themselves out with difficulty, with frustration, with, with, with hurt and pain, yes, but things tend to work themselves out. But when God's people turn away, when we decide that our ultimate concern is us, when we start navel-gazing and it's all about what I get, what I get, what I get, and God's supposed to give me what I want, what I want, what I want, God will allow things to happen to call us to repentance. He will let us be as miserable as we choose to be. There's a time when, when it says that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then later... It tells us, or actually it says that God, God, God rose up against David and David then started counting his people. And there elsewhere in Chronicles, it tells us that, that Satan came up against them. So how, how is it that God and Satan can, can is, that, is that a conflict in scripture? No. Because God withholds the consequences of our sin from us in large extent when we are being faithful. We mess up, yes, but when we're, when he's our ultimate concern, when he's the one that we're, that we're seeking first, seek first the kingdom of heaven, when that's going on, God in his mercy withholds from us all the consequences that our sin deserves. But when we drift, when we start thinking it's on us and it's about us and I want, I want, I want, I want, my will be done, not yours, then God stops withholding at times and allows the full consequence of our sin. That's why he says, when I stop the rain, when I send locusts. You remember when, when Elijah goes before the king, Ahab, and God had told Elijah that there's going to be a famine, a drought and a famine. And, 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 and Elijah tells Ahab that. So God's sending a famine? Yeah. Because when the people are under judgment, the purpose of God is always to call them back to himself. Always. And how does he tell us to behave? What is his character? What does he say to us when we're in, when, when we're in difficulty, when it's as bad as it can be? He listens. He's concerned. He sees. He remembers. But what about when things are good? When things are really good? The temple of God just was built. What does he tell us? He tells us that when you drift, and you will, if my people 
who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. So who's supposed to repent for the people? Those of us who are called by his name. We cannot expect others to repent of sin they don't believe is sin or call out to a God they don't believe is God. We, because of the Holy Spirit of God, we are the hope of civilization. Christians, the people who are called by God's name, will we humble ourselves or we're waiting for other people to humble themselves? Will we call out? Will we confess our sin? Because it tells us right here, God hears. And God will be concerned for his people. But God will, he, he will heal our land when we are the people God wants us to be. Now, when things... That's when things are really good. What about when things are about to get really bad? This is one of our favorite passages. Everyone has this stenciled in their kitchen or on their, in their family room or something like that. And I'm not mocking that because it is a great promise of God. But remember that Jeremiah 29, 11, that promise was made before things are going to get really ugly. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, so you people are going to be captured by Babylon and, and you're going to be brought into captivity and you're going to be spread out all over the, the known world. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then... You will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You will seek me, and you will find me, and you will seek me, or you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places that I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So God is telling them it's going to get ugly. And there's other instructions God gives. He tells them to, to marry off their daughters. And he, and he says, if you prosper, Babylon will prosper. And God had a purpose for the world, not just for the Israelites. The Israelites had never, had never celebrated the year of Jubilee. Seventy times they had missed it. Seventy times they decided, we're not going to really trust God. We're, maybe, maybe the year of Sabbath, but never the year of Jubilee, because that means every 49 years, they have to have two full harvests, two full plants that don't happen, two full harvests that don't happen. And they would actually have to rely on God to provide for them. And they would have to forgive debts. If someone owes me something, I have to give, I have to give that debt back. And all land is supposed to go back to the people so, to, that, that God had given. And they're just like, no, we can't. We can't trust God that much. And so he said, okay. Because you're turning from me and you won't trust me. You won't give me all your heart. You won't. I'm not the thing that you're most concerned about. You are. He allowed them to be taken into captivity. But while there, Nebuchadnezzar, a demon-worshipping king, the most powerful man on the planet at that time, over the course of very difficult, a lot of difficulty for, for, for Daniel, for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others, 
God converted a demon-worshiping king after he spent some time like a cow, and he issued a proclamation to the whole world that no other God is to be worshiped except for the God of the Israelites. So God had something in mind for the greater world, but he also had something in mind for Israel. He wanted to see if they would trust him to remember them, to be concerned for them, to prosper them, and not to harm them. So when things are really bad, God hears, God sees, God's concerned, and God remembers his promises. When things are really good, God says, it, it, when it gets ugly, and it will, you confess, you repent, you call on me, and I'll hear you, and I'll heal your land. And right before things get bad, God gives hope. For I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. But you're not going to see that for 70 years. And then finally, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, it says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. And then Paul, I think he could have worded this a little bit differently, but he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So what's the character of God from the time, it's always the case, but from the time of the, the passages that we've read, from, from the time of captivity to the temple, to the Babylonian exile, and now post-resurrection when the church is being built up and the, the apostle to the Gentiles speaking to Philippi. What's the character? God sees. God hears. God's faithful to his promises. And he's concerned for his people. And he's so concerned for his people that he tells us what to do when it feels like, seems like, or where, 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 where our experience says that God's not present. He tells us to humble ourselves, to call on his name, to remind ourselves that we are whose we are. And Paul, things are pretty good for the Philippians at that point. But what does he say? Why should we not be anxious? And I don't mean, I don't mean clinical anxiety. That's not what we're talking about here. But it's the fear of man. It's the fear of civilization. It's the fear of, of oh my goodness, is God really going to do anything? Why shouldn't we fear? Why shouldn't we have anxiety? Because it looks like the whole thing's falling apart. Because God hears. Because God sees. Because God will keep his promises. Because God is concerned 
for his people. If I'm supposed to have no anxiety about anything, but, in, but by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present my request to God, and then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see what, he, what he's saying? The same thing he's been saying throughout all of history. You come to me. You speak to me. You call on me. You remember whose you are. Only then does the peace of Christ that transcends all understanding guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I'm not a legalist. Like, if you do this, 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 and this, 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 and this, God has to do that. It's not what it's saying here. But he does give us a remedy. He does say that when we're, when we're looking at the world, when we're fearful of what's going to happen in Russia and Ukraine, when we're looking at China and its growth, and when we're, when we're thinking about our, our own um, political body politic climate, and we're, we're whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The hope of the world is Christ. The supernatural vehicle that Christ has chosen to bring that hope to the world is us. And if we're shaken by everything that happens in our world, if we get all up in arms about every time something new happens, something, some new crisis takes place, some new thing, some new shift in the culture, if we get, oh, we're saying to people that we're exactly like you, that we have no hope. But we do. The hope, the God of the universe, the one who gave his life for us tells us Think about the good things. It's not just be optimistic, realistic. But what are we supposed to fill our minds with? The goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God, the covenants of God, the hope that is in Christ, the, the, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the fact that God never changes, that his scripture never changes. We need not fear man. We need not fear culture. We should Fear God. And I don't mean in trembling fear. I mean honoring God, seeking God, calling on God, confessing to God, repenting to God, and allowing God to say, I hear you. I see you. I'm concerned about you. And the beauty of the consecration of the temple that we talked about in Chronicles Yeah, he might still have his heart toward the stone and brick temple. But you know where his heart is now? Where he chooses to show up, where he will be near? You. Us. He tells you and me that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to jump into the ocean and it will obey. And he tells us when two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there. 
We don't have as many people as we normally would if it was bright and sunny out there right now. But you understand the power of the universe that's in this room right now? To him who is able to do infinitely more abundantly above all we could ask or even dream up. Uper ik perisu, uper panta. Immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. That's how we translate it. But Paul invented words. Infinitely more abundantly above all we could ask or even dream up. That is who is within us. That is who is looking at the world and saying, people, call on my name. Humble yourselves. Do you trust me? Do you really trust me? Because he is the one who sees, who hears, who remembers, who's concerned, who is near. And he tells us, think about me. Remember me. Listen to me. Be concerned about me. Come near to me because I will be found by you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that started before the world was made. And it continues until the world is remade. And you and I get to participate in it. Will we do it in fear and even loathing and hatred toward others and anger? Or will we trust the God who sees, hears, remembers, and is concerned, and who promises that he will be near. That choice, my friends, is up to each one of us individually. But I pray that we become a people more and more, we already are, but more and more, who come near to God because he can be found, who see God, who hear him, who are concerned with what God is concerned about, and who remember that God remembers his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people. We are called by your name. And we humble ourselves. Give us strength to not fear man or politics or culture or even civilization, but to fear you because you hold kings in your hand. You know what you're doing. You know the plans you have for us. You're not, you're not gonna, you don't wanna do harm to us, but we might have to go through a time where we have to choose faithfulness even though we don't feel it. Lord, help us be your people to hope and give hope to this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.